Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 164 for October 2nd, 2008. Sock stress. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You could do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now. This is the show which helps you, we hope, understand how security works and protect yourself online. Here he is, the king of security, Steve Gibson from his Sometimes fortress. it may confuse you, but we try to do our best not to have that be the result. I think that when people um, listen and they don't understand... My the universal reaction, and I include myself in this, Steve, is that it's our fault, not yours. You do a very good job of explaining it. And these are just difficult subjects and sometimes so difficult that you just, you know, you, you can't understand it. The only thing I would wish for, and this is just not practical, would be like a rehearsal of the whole thing. There, there are some we topic- can rehearse. You want to rehearse? No, <laughs> no, it's That's, too much work. That's my point. Is it? I mean. You know, there are there are some things that I've tackled where I've afterwards been unhappy with my with, you know, with my own presentation thinking, OK, you know, now that I've done it once. I think I, that's true. I think that's true sometimes. Um, and, and I blame myself in that case because I think I could probably say, well, let, let me go through this, make sure I understand. And I'll do that more also. But Steve, I, a standing invitation. Anytime you want to you say, hey, I think I could do that better. I'm here. I'm here all day, all night. <laughs> sometimes it seems that way so just give me a holler and uh, we'll do it again because i uh, these are sometimes complicated very complicated now today we today, have a kind of a, a shocker we have a shocker we're not doing a q a today um something happened just today and all of our listeners are going to be writing to us asking and then like if if they're not writing right now Asking, oh my God, have you heard about this? What does it mean? Blah, blah, blah. The other reason I want to talk about it is there's a huge amount of confusion that has already surfaced. Basically, um, a couple security researchers have are claiming, and I'm believing them, that they have found some serious problems in they're saying every TCP stack that they have looked at. And that they are able to bring sites down with essentially a low bandwidth denial of service. Hmm. And if you put SOC stress, S-O-C-K-S-T-R-E-S-S, SOC stress into Google, you'll find pages. Um, This thing just happened today as a consequence of an audio interview that they gave. Um, What I'm really unhappy about is that they let the cat out of the bag. They did not handle this in the way Dan Kaminsky did. They, as I'm listening to their, to this MP3, 
I quickly understood what it was. And I was saying to myself, okay, stop talking. Stop talking right now. Don't say anything more. But they kept talking. And Well, this and, is what you get from a guy named Cracker's Child. <laughs> I, cle- I mean, clearly the guy's not, you know, a white hat. Well, they're... <laughs> We'll we'll talk about this during the podcast because, and I'm going to explain to people what it is that they've done because the cat's out of the bag. They, anybody who is a packet smith, who is the kind of person who could implement this, all they have to do is listen to this audio, which is now spread all over the web. That's terrible. That's very irresponsible. It's really irresponsible. I mean, so you're saying the minute they discovered it, they just said, "Hey, here's here's what we found." Instead of going to uh, the vendors and saying, "Maybe work as Dan Kaminsky did, maybe work with them." They say they've been playing with this for for since 2005. Oh, they say that they are in discussions with vendors, but that they haven't been going very far or very well or something. And then and then they they gave one presentation sometime before they're giving another one on the 17th and 18th in Helsinki and where they're going to demonstrate this. But already in this MP3, which has been linked from Slashdot, anyone listening to it who could implement this will know how to. I mean, I could do this in about an hour. Mm. I have no interest in bringing sites down. I never have. But but there's I mean. You know, the, the this is easier to do than what 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 Kaminsky found, and it's more obvious how to do it from what these guys have already said. So where Dan really did keep a li- a lid on this for you know for three months until the patches were out, um, these guys have not. And what they've said means that by the end of the day, attacks will be developed. I mean, it's that easy to do this. And they're saying they can bring any Windows or Linux or BSD box and routers down. Hmm. And based on what they've said, I believe them. And I'll, anyway, that's the topic of today's show, sock stress. And um, I'm going to, because this is not rocket science and because they've essentially got a now a published MP3 audio, which anyone... With with who has the ability to degenerate packets and understand TCP, this is all anyone needs. This is much. They've given the world much more than Kaminsky did. And remember, it took a week there between the time he told us there was a problem. He was going to. It was going to be. I guess it was two weeks because it was going to be a month between the the time he let there be known there was a problem and the patches came out and he was going to release at Black Hat. And two weeks later, it had been reverse engineered, figured out, and it was, you know, deployed. Well, this is far more critical than a DNS spoof. This is a serious problem with with TCP that and and what these guys have have found, which and I haven't even verified it, but I understand from what they've said what the problem is and. I'm going to explain it this, you know, during this next hour. All right. We're going to talk about that. It's not a question and answer session. We'll defer that to another day. We'll talk about sock stress. And it's not something that happens in the laundry. Uh, but uh, that's coming up in just a bit. <laughs> also, uh, secu- other security or maybe news. it is. Maybe but it not- is. <laughs> Different kind of sock stress. Uh, other security news coming up as well. And uh, errata and corrections for previous shows. Before we do that, I want to talk about Go to Meeting, our great sponsor, the folks who... Uh, Citrix, who do go to my PC, also do go to meetings. Same idea, 
Go to my PC allows you remote access to a computer. Go to meeting allows you to hold meetings online. And if you've used other online meeting services, this is so much superior. This is the way to do it. So go to meeting is uh, very simple to set up. You know, if you've ever tried to set up one of these things before, you know that it can sometimes be a, a little challenging. Um, you know, you've got to, you've got to, uh, you know, get the firewall open and all this stuff. Not at all with go to meeting. In fact, I want you to try it right now. Just go to go to meeting.com. And I don't worry about saying that because they have big, big servers. Go to go to meeting.com and, uh, and set it up. It takes like two minutes to set up. And I'm going to show you how you can do it for free, by the way. So uh, there'll be no, no cost to you to try this out. So here's the deal. Nobody wants to travel anymore. We're all doing conference calls more for meetings. Um, when I work on a speech with people, I use GoToMeeting all the time. Uh, when we want to collaborate on documents, uh, if I want to show somebody how to use a program, GoToMeeting. It's a great solution for that. No more travel. Don't you save money on gas. You save time. You don't have to go through airport security to fly across the country for a one-hour meeting. You just set it up on GoToMeeting. A couple of clicks of the mouse. Meeting invitations sent out. Or if you want, you're, you're on the phone. While you're on the phone, a couple of clicks of the mouse and you say, okay, go to gotomeeting.com. They'll say, what? I said, just go to gotomeeting.com. It's a website. And enter this meeting ID. And all of a sudden, this is, and by the way, this is magical. This, this, this like throws people. They go, whoa, that's your, that's your computer? Yeah, let me show you something. And they're seeing your screen. They see your PowerPoint. They see video even. Websites, documents. You could collaborate. You could say, let's work on this together. You type and I'll type. You can give them control. You can say, all right, your turn. Why don't you take the meeting over and you show me something? Go to meeting.com. Now, here's how you use it free for the next 30 days, a month of unlimited online meetings. I want you to go to go to meeting, G-O-T-O meeting.com slash security now. Go to meeting.com slash security now. When you sign up, you get 30 days free. You could try it on your friends, your clients, the colleagues, the people that you might be working with. Show your boss. They're all going to agree. This is it. This is really, this is it. You might have tried the other guys. This is the one. Take it from me. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank you for their support of security now. So before we get to uh, sock stress, one word, sock stress, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, last week's show and any security news you have. Anything going on out there? Oh, yeah. A bunch of stuff. Um, well, the, the, <laughs> there, there was an article in, uh, uh, that, that the BBC published. Uh, a news blurb that caught my attention. I thought I was just kind of thinking, oh, goodness. Um, turns out that that somebody bought a a, a Cisco VPN router yeah. off of eBay okay. that was still configured <laughs> with the way it had been set up when it was sold. So he takes it home, plugs it in, plug, hooks it up to his network, and he is connected into the internal private network of the vpn routers prior owner whoopsies (laughs) so so the the story reads andrew mason from uh from security firm random storm bought some network hardware which happened to have been a cisco vpn router from auction site ebay okay for like less than a pound he paid nothing he paid like scrap money for it when he switched it on and plugged it in, the device automatically connected to the internal network of Kirkley's Council in West Yorkshire. Kirkley's <laughs> Council ca- called the discovery concerning. Unquote. It's a bit of a concern, yes, but said that its data had not been compromised. So 
Anyway, just a little heads up. Uh, you know, you definitely want to remember is to it, wipe the memory and configuration of it, anything like that. Is it pretty easy to do? Must be. I mean, there must be. Just, oh yeah, you yeah. just re- return it to factory settings and it would forget everything it knew. I mean, obviously it had it had <laughs> you know the IP address and the VPN keys, the security keys. For their VPN server. It just right. linked itself into their network and said, ah, now you're part of our network. Well, you know, I do that. I don't know if this is, I guess it's related with with a secure shell, with SSH. It's secure if you set it up so that you just log in. You don't pass a password along. It just recognizes yep. your, 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 your thumbprint, right? Yep. But if you give somebody that machine <laughs> and you don't erase that stuff, it's just going to log right in. So, hello. Yes, 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 yes. I'm exactly. here. In two other little blurbs, um, I wanted to mention there a lot of a lot of our listeners wrote in to inform me that form was back. The P H O R M form. It uh, turns out that uh, BT British Telecom is going to fire up another form test this time with opt in, which is all all anyone wants. Oh, um, there's there's still some concern that most users just click OK without reading the text. Right. But now um, Form has said that, that they're going to do a test. They want to find, they're going to select basically at random 10,000 users. And so those 10,000 people, when they, when they attempt to get on the net, their browser will be intercepted with an intercept page. This is exactly what I was describing when we were discussing this months ago. I said, look, this is all they have to do yeah. to, make it, to make it okay. So their browser, which attempts to get to the net, will be intercepted because, of course, this is all network interception technology that Form is bringing. And, and that, so there'll be a page that comes up and offering them to opt in. Apparently now um, Form is attempting to promote this service as a benefit to the customers by saying, oh, that we're also going to give you anti-phishing protection. That is, if you try to go to a since they're monitoring every, since we're monitoring everything you do, if you go to a site that is a dangerous site, we'll give you some sort of interception warning. So, so they're promoting it as we're going to enhance your web security um, and you know, blah blah blah. But at least it's an opt-in now instead of it being done surreptitiously behind everyone's back and. You know that our U.S. Congress has raised the alarm and said, wait a minute, folks, we need to look at this whole notion of of third parties being involved in monitoring ISPs. Good, um, good, good, good. Tra- traffic. So Verizon, AT&T, and Time Warner Cable have all stated to Congress that if they ever do this, they promise to make it an opt-in system and never do it without their subscribers' knowledge or permission. Again, the problem is that so many people are just used to saying, okay, fine, you know, clicking on anything that comes up that stops them from getting to the page they want to, that they may not read the fine print. But, but this is certainly, you know, th- this is certainly all you could ask for from an ISP. I mean, you might want them to have another screen come up and say, are you sure? But... That seems unlikely. So you're content um, with this? You think that this is uh, this is adequate to make form acceptable? Uh, well, you know the the problem with form, remember, is that it is really nasty in terms of what it does with cookies. It it inserts their own cookies into in addition to any website cookies to any place you visit. Right. So I mean, it really messes up any the 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 the, the computer of any client that 
filters through a form using ISP. But, you know, again, people will, I hope they explain that they're using form, that it's P-H-O-R-M, that they like saying, we're going to be using the form system because the point is, it's gotten such bad press in the UK that a lot of people would know, well, maybe I don't want to do that. I don't want to click on yes. Oh, and you can opt out. When you opt out, it puts a, it puts opt out cookies on your system. And the question would be then, is it going to put an opt out cookie for every ISP? If the technology functions as we described it, they would need an opt out cookie for every ISP. So even if you opt out, you would still be gunking up your system. You'd just be gunking it up with, please don't track me, please don't track me, please don't track me cookies, instead of, you know, this is who I am cookies. So, you know, the whole idea just is really distasteful. And it's unfortunate that this is the way they've, they've implemented the technology. They didn't, I did see one blurb that said that they've determined, however, that the load on their system from all this filtering would require, in the case of British Telecom, as many as 300 additional servers in order to handle the additional traffic. I mean, all of this bouncing around and redirecting and cookie insertion and deletion and all that nonsense, I mean, it does pose an overhead. And that does imply also that customers are going to see some reduced performance because if 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 any ISP needs an additional 300 servers, that says that those servers are busy involving themselves with traffic that they're not having to now, which says, okay, there's going to be some overhead yeah. for every single, every single TCP connection you establish with a remote web server. Um, the only good news is that SSL connections are still safe. There's, you know, they're not intercepting any sort of secure connections. So, it sort of says, you know, get a secure connection every time you can because it, then you're not being filtered in any way when there's no opt-in or opt-out nonsense. Is that because they can't? They really can't. Yes, they, they, they can't. I mean, the day that our ISPs require us to accept a their own certificate authority so that they can terminate the SSL connections and filter that, Okay, that's the point where you just say, no, that's really not okay. Yeah. There are, of course, corporations who are doing this, but that's within their own domain. I think that's... that's, Well, and ISPs could do it by uh, redirection, right? Well, no, ISPs, in order order for it to function, um, they have to terminate the remote connection to the web server and then set up a new SSL connection. Right. So, So they would have to give, they would have to give us... A, a browser cert that said that you know that their servers are are authorized. Um, it would it would be a mess, um, but it it can be done. So uh, in fact, that's what Opera Mini does, as I remember. Opera Mini, uh, we learned, is not secure with SSL connections because, as part of their proxying scheme, uh, exactly they do exactly that. They have a their own certificate. Um, and my last little bit of news. I thought it was interesting that real DVD has already been hauled into court by Hollywood. You'll remember that real DVD um, was a, a new piece of software being offered by, by real, um, which would allow people to, to decrypt and copy DVDs to their computers. But, but, but keep the encryption on it, keep the copy protection on it. 
Uh-huh. And Hollywood has said, yes, well, sorry, oh. but you have violated the DMCA. Well, technically, which, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yes, they've had to re-engineer it and to they had to decrypt it in order to then put their own encryption on it. So their argument was, but, you know, this is fair use. This falls within fair use. And Hollywood is saying, ah, we don't like it. So, you know, they've, they've, they've sued each other now. And in fact, Real sort of did a preemptive suit, apparently uh, filed a suit looking for a judgment on the fact that this was okay, and that whereupon the Hollywood people said, uh, it's not okay, and they sued them for copyright infringement and violation of the DMCA. Now, they may so. win that case because there's one other, I think, related case, and that was the DVD jukebox case, and that's right? What, that's what allowed them to think they might be able to get away with it, but... You know, it'll be interesting to see once this is tested, uh, how it comes out. So this was a device that was a DVD jukebox, but didn't but didn't use the discs. It copied it to a hard drive and the judge, they sued, of course, and the judge said, no, no, this is okay because it's not accessible in any other way. It's just, it's on the drive. It doesn't give somebody access to the the data. They still have to have the disc originally to make it and, uh, and they can't access the data in other ways. I guess the concern would be you'd go out and you'd rent a bunch of movies copy them over, and then return ah, the movie. Right, right. Yeah, that, that would be a concern. We've had a, a bunch of security updates. Uh, Firefox has moved from 3.0.2 to 3.0.3 and fixed a number of things. Uh, Mozilla also had a round of updates. And Java for Mac had a big 136 meg update. Uh, in this case, it was fixing two serious vulnerabilities, um, which had remote exploit uh, aspects to them. So I just wanted to let anyone knowing who's uh, let anyone know who's using Firefox or Mozilla or Java that they're going to want to make sure they're running up-to-date code because uh, those have all had uh, significant fixes. It's amazing. I, I did want to mention also, just acknowledge to our listeners that you and I and, and Dane and, and Tony and everybody know about the half cutoff of last week's episode 163. It, it caused some confusion, and I heard from a lot of people that they only got half the podcast. And yeah, thank you, actually, for bringing that up. So I guess we uh, inadvertently uh, cut off the upload, uh, and so only half the podcast was there, actually. Uh, right. And what we do in a case like that, just so uh, people understand, uh, we can fix it, but we are on caching servers. So uh, AOL uh, uses uh, Akamai as a caching server. And yeah, Steve, actually, I'd love to get some insight from you or maybe one of our listeners on this. You know, I would think in theory, a cache, the way a caching server works is there's a, a primary server, which is what we upload to. And then when you request it, your request is actually forwarded to a, a server that's geographically near to you. That server, if it has a copy of the file, will just serve it from directly to you. If it doesn't, it will go to the primary server. It's kind of like DNS. Get it download it, and then serve it to you. Uh, there are some problems with this, though, because while you would think a caching server would be smart enough to do some sort of uh, you know, hash or MD5 hash or CRC or something to say... Even, even a timestamp. Yeah, is this the same file? Um, apparently, it doesn't. If the file name is the same, at least this has been our experience, we can't quite figure it out. If the file name is the same, it just says, oh, I've got it. And so if we do it, if there's a mistake which happens frequently, or we cut something off. Sometimes the server, the, it's the caching server itself will get a bad copy for whatever reason, and it will continue to serve that bad copy. So from time to time, I'll get reports, and it happens, for instance, to the uh, Akamai server in Florida more than others. 
So I'll say when somebody says, I got a truncated version and I'm only hearing it from a few people, I'll say, where are you? And they, and they'll say often the same location. That's because your local caching server happens to have a bad copy. The only way we, I, we can figure out to fix this is to post it a second time with a new name. So what we do is we append uh, pen a letter, usually A, unless we make this mistake more than once, just A. So it was uh, security now, uh, you know, dash one six, uh, whatever it was, two. Yeah, a, it was yeah, SN dash one six three, three was last week. A dot MP3 right. uh, instead of just, you know, one six three dot MP3. Uh, and in order to do the reason we do that is then we change the feeds. We change the link on the website. The caching server now gets a, another copy with a different name. It thinks it's a different file, which it is. And we'll serve you that one. So if you accidentally and we fi- we fixed it within 12 hours. So I got enough emails that the, the first mm-hmm. thing in the morning, I went, whoa, um, it happened overnight, unfortunately. Um, th- so what we do then is we we put up the second version, but you may have already downloaded the first version. So that's where the confusion probably comes from with people who got two copies of 163. Right. Listen to 163A. That's the full version. 163 is damaged. I do apologize for wasting your bandwidth. Um, just it was a mistake on our side. Also, um, I have a little bit of sci-fi news. I know that we have a, a strong sci-fi uh, subculture uh, oh, among yeah. our listeners. So I wanted to mention that uh, the Fox's new Fringe uh, series continues to be really fun. I, I, I notified our listeners about it um, beforehand, I think, and uh, I just uh, continue to enjoy it. Um, and I also wanted to give everyone a heads up that uh, the reason um, uh, Amanda Tapping has left the uh, completely left the uh, Stargate series is that she's moved to a new show uh, that is premiering this coming Friday, which will be the day after this podcast goes live on the on Sci-Fi Channel called Sanctuary. And oh. so the two-hour premiere of Sanctuary is airing. The, the show is interesting from a technical production standpoint in that it is, in, it is massively virtual. Um, I've seen a little bit of making of Sanctuary stuff. They've been teasing us during some other Sci-Fi shows. And it's, for example, showed some of the actors standing around in just this this room of green screens where everything was matted onto these green screens and so all you know they're doing all their acting and and motion stuff with no scenery at all which is all added later and i know nothing about the show except that i think the sanctuary is a sanctuary for monsters of their descriptions Uh-oh. i mean like you know so this is like where monsters go to seek sanctuary cool, and the plot goes from there. So it, it does sound like it could be fun. And uh, there's another show on the BBC, which I've been enjoying uh, primeval, which is also taking advantage of a lot of, of CG stuff, you know, computer generated graphics, like for all of the, all of the monsters. And I, I have to say, I'm really impressed with how the technology has evolved so that, that weekly shows are now able to offer us the kind of things that we used to need to go to feature films to see. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not the quality of, of, you know, high end feature films in terms of of special effects, but I mean, it's very passable for a weekly and it, you know, certainly gives us sci-fi fanatics uh, something more. And finally, my last little tidbit is that I just happened to go over to this, the website of one of my favorite authors, um, uh, Michael McCollum, who I've talked about for years. 
He's the the guy uh, sci-fi half hyphen a z s c i f i hyphen a z dot com who does the ebooks and also publishes paperbacks. He has been really gratified with the with the attention that that I've brought to his work to our listening audience. And I was just sort of curious. I go every few months that I when I wonder what's happening with the third book in the Gibraltar series, and I was met with. Um, some delightful news uh, reading from his page he says after a too long gestation period gibraltar stars is well launched and moving steadily forward his first one was gibraltar earth and then gibraltar sun Um, i've read the first one twice and the second one once because i always like to start at the beginning and reread the series when a new one comes out so i'm all back up to speed and this is just a fantastic trilogy or soon to be a trilogy right now it's the first two books of the trilogy and he said part one of the series is complete uh it's launched and moving steadily forward and he says i'm working on part two um and i can't read it well okay this page says the broa have discovered that there are wild bipeds loose in their empire and <laughs> they are not happy this will cause our heroes big problems in the future the this the 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 series is really fun. Essentially, we we discover that we're we're by some coincidence haven't been noticed by a vast we we humanity humans by a vast sovereignty. Uh, I mean, a, a vast empire of really not very nice um, aliens who enslave all the races that they encounter. And by some coincidence, our, our expanding radio sphere hasn't yet touched any of their listening posts. And mm-hmm. anyway, oh, it's just, it's wonderful, you know, space opera. So I'm delighted that, that he's working on the third book. However, he said, um, he says, as I have long noted in the facts FAQs um, at Sci-Fi Arizona, this website is an experiment. I've always maintained that people are basically honest, and when they understand the damage done by giving out my books for free, they will not do it. The purpose of this progress report is to let those of you who have read Gibraltar Earth and Gibraltar Sun know that the end of the series is in sight. However, if this trading of my... Oh, um, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a paragraph. He says, and now for the bad news. Today, a reader alerted me that there are unauthorized copies of several of my books on the web. One of the nice things he's done is he does not copy protect these. Um, it's, you know, they're in various ebook formats, but it means that they could be uploaded by, by people who have purchased them from him uh, and shared, which, of course, is a bad thing to do. He says, I checked, and the postings appear to be the work of two individuals both of whom probably feel that they are just being friendly users of the Internet and sharing work they enjoyed with others. So he puts, uh, he encodes the uh, PDF with information about who bought it. Um, either that or he's just looking. I don't know that. Um, maybe he does. I would. Um, I, yeah, I would. I mean, that's what I do with, with, with Spinrite is I right. just put the, you do the name it. of yeah. the in the product and I say, look, you know, don't share this because that's, you know, I cease to exist if 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 right. it is shared. So anyway, so he says, however, if this trading of my work becomes epidemic, it totally destroys my incentive to put another five to six hundred hours into the new book or write follow on books. 
if I can't sell my books, it makes more sense for me to become a full-time publisher at Third Millennium Publishing. If you become aware of people posting my work and have access to them, please explain the damage they are doing and politely request that they take the books down. The problem with trading, unquote, creative works, is that you can save a few dollars today, but ultimately you will kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And his stuff is not expensive, and it's really good. So, anyway, I wanted to give another plug to this Gibraltar series. Um, I'm so excited that I'm going to find out what happens next. Um, <laughs> because he's just written a really interesting uh, yarn here that uh, is going to take us in some some fun directions. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I read the first one, and uh, and I've and I've just uh, gotten behind because of Peter F. Hamilton. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll slow you down. <laughs> I, I'm slogging my way through uh, the uh, Night's Dawn trilogy. I'm about halfway through now, but it's just long. Oh, you're reading Night's Dawn? Yeah, yeah, good. Well, it does get. That's believe me, it does. Very long story. Yeah, it is. It, it's and it's fun. Um, I, I really liked it, but I have to say, um, I ended up. Oh, I don't mean to spoil it for you, Leo, but it 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 really seemed to be overly long. And I thought the first book was the best of the three. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I I got you know I bought it on the Kindle, so I can't. It's all together, smushed together. So Ooh, it's just like one, one gen. Yeah, in fact, the, they remember that the Sony reader couldn't even load it. Right. It, cla- it crashed right. the Sony reader. I, I did an experiment when the Kindle first came out and specifically bought it for the Kindle just to see if it would work. It's huge. And yeah. But you know how, how, how the Kindle shows percentage dots? Right. I, you probably haven't seen many of those. No. It took, and I'm, I can know I'm halfway through because the dots are now you know, almost halfway oh, across. Okay. Yeah. But boy, I mean, so that's, it is. It's very, very long. But it, I mean, it's fascinating. But it's kind of slowed me down on science fiction. I only, you know, I read other stuff as well as science fiction. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not making this much headway as I, as I, as I should. Hey, we're well, going to have a, go ahead. You, you got a spin right story, I'm sure. And I know we want to talk about stress to my socks. Well, that's the big topic. Yes. <laughs> and we're not talking garters, but uh, I do want to also mention the folks at Astaro because they, they really are, are very supportive of this show. They have been since day one, practically. I can't, I'm going to have to go back and look. I know it wasn't exactly day one, but they've been with us for so long. That's because the Astaro Security Gateway and Security Now are just a perfect match. Astaro makes the ultimate UTM, that's Unified Threat Management Device. It's a box you put on your network. Looks like a router, but boy, you could tell just by the construction, it's more than a router. Solid, heavy gauge steel. And inside, you get a mix of best of breed in open source and commercial software that does everything you want, every aspect of security, including email security with built in on the fly encryption, decryption, and signing using open PGP and SMIME. You get anti spam, anti phishing. You get dual virus protection for email. Complete web filtering, too. Content filtering, antivirus for the web, anti-spyware. In this day and age, you need something like this. And if you're a business, having that Astaro Security Gateway as the gateway to the outside world just gives you real peace of mind. By the way, it's got SSL VPN built in. So for complete remote access, absolutely rock-solid, secure, easy to configure. It's not complicated. Don't be scared off by uh, all that it does. It actually is amazing how much it does with some very simple configuration, intrusion protection, of course, a super firewall too. I want you to check it out. You can get a free demo unit for your business by giving Astaro a ring. The number is 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. A free demo in your 
business. You can also download it for non-commercial users from the website. Go to astaro.com slash security now. And uh, there's even VMware appliances for it if you want to try it that way. But I think the best way to do it is get the actual box, put it in your business, and see how it works. By the way, it will grow with you up to 10 uh, uh, units can be connected together without additional load load distributors using, they call it active-active clustering. So you can, as you grow, you just add another one, add another one, add another one. It's really a great product. 877, the number four, I'm using one right here. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. We thank Astaro so much for their support of security now. So Steve Gibson, we got all well, the so, right out of the way. Anything else? Um, talk about? Uh, well, we have spin, right? Um, I actually ran across this report just this morning. And in fact, I was, I settled down and I was re- uh, reading through my mailbag, all set to do a Q&A. Right. When, um, when I got a note sent to me by one of the people in the GRC news group that was just forwarding me a blurb that had been posted in one of our news groups, we have a, a, gr- a group called uh, that I named Link Farm because it's just it's where people post links to other things, and that's where this this notice of this um, sock stress problem came up. Ah. And so as I pursued that, I realized, and then li- and listen to the audio file is like, oh no, I you know I have we have to talk about that today. So that's when the the Q and A got postponed till next week. Um, but prior to that, I had run across this posting that was just sent to me is dated the 30th. So uh, yesterday um, from someone who called himself Matthew with a subject, Spinrite saves a tech from himself. Mm-hmm. And he said, hello, Stephen Leo. I just have to start by saying how much I enjoy your netcast. I started listening when it was a mere 32 episodes old and soon went and started from number one, as you often suggest listeners do. I listen to most of your other netcasts, Leo, and have even branched out to others. But I always come back to security now as my favorite. There is something about the quality of this netcast that is just precise. I have an hour drive to work, which I'm afraid has nothing to do with traffic. And security now, well, security now and Audible, have become, has made a very boring drive very enjoyable. I actually like getting into the car. Steve, you've mentioned often that you do not tire of Spinrite stories. And while mine is not so much exciting as a Navy SEAL rescue mission or as honorable as saving a life's lifetime of photos, our family's lifetime of photos, it is my little Spinrite story. I'm a big fan of Spinrite and have owned a copy for, well, I guess just about two years now. I work for a local college in southern B.C., and spend a lot of time dealing with staff, faculty, lab, and student machines with various issues and problems. My first move is always Spinrite. When a machine is brought in, Spinrite. When a client is complaining (laughs) about their system, I tell them to buy Spinrite. When it's time for lunch, Spinrite. Spinrite. (laughs) Okay, maybe not that much Spinrite, but close. And that's true of just about any machine I work on. While I admit... A lot of the time, the problem is not a hard drive. It makes me feel better running your tool. It also gives me a chance to do a little research on whatever other symptoms might be, the, the machine might be having. So, over the weekend, I moved into a new place, after which my own PC would not boot into Windows. It did that great little trick of an endless boot crash boot loop uh, that I, know, I, that that. I know you're familiar with. Yeah. In panic. I grabbed my kit of software and tools 
and went to work. I tried every trick I could think of, running the recovery console to repair windows, reinstalling over top of my current installation. I tested memory, the sound card, the video card. Well, you get the idea. And yet still, the boot, the machine continued uh. to boot loop. Now, I don't have anything really all that impressive on my machine. I actually reload my PC a lot, so it's not a big deal. I'm not a torrent junkie. I don't have lots of data that I can't afford to lose. I do enjoy a challenge of fixing a problem. But after four hours of tech time on this machine, uh. I decided I would just blow it away and start over fresh. So I grabbed my CD case and started flipping through it for my copy of Windows XP. And suddenly I stopped, staring directly at the Spinrite boot CD. I looked at it a bit surprised. I hadn't even thought of running it. Oh. I, laughed, I laughed at myself and threw it in the machine, started it up, and walked away. When I came back, I found Spinrite had happily finished its task, so I rebooted the system, and what do you know, it booted straight in. And there you have it, another testimonial of the great power of Spinrite. Wow, Keep that's up really interesting. Wow. So I got a kick out of the fact that here he is, you know, anytime anyone else tells him, to, like, I, well, my machine's doing something strange. Okay, run Spinrite. I'm, <laughs> I'm hungry. Okay, run Spinrite. Um, but when it happened to him, you know, he Oops, just he, he grabbed all of his own tools and thought, oh, okay, I'm going to fix this, you know, like, instead of just running Spinrite and letting it fix the problem for him. So there you go. A kick out of that. It's the same with me, you know. It's the cobbler's kids, you know. You always forget yeah, for yourself. Exactly. You're, you could exactly. do it for a client. You know what's the right thing to do. You just forget. Boot loops. We have to do a thing on boot loops one of these days. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Subject at hand is better than boot loops. It's sock stress. Okay. So here's the story. Um, two Swedish researchers, Robert E. Lee and Jack Lewis. Actually, I, I had his middle initial, but I took it out because, you know, of course, Robert E. Lee is That's a the general. Famous, yeah, it's yes. exactly the famous general uh, in, in American history. Um, they have a, a, a security research site called Outpost 24. And, you know, they're some security researcher guys. They, they explain in this audio MP3, which is now being widely listened to all over the web. It was, it's it was Slashdot picked it up. It's linked to in the anchor posting on Slashdot. Um, it starts out in Swedish or Finnish or something ish. Uh, definitely not English. Um, but about four minutes in, um, it switches to English because I guess these guys speak English. And so the interviewer, who is saying something for the first four minutes that I can't understand switches over to English. And then, then the rest is, is understandable. Um, um, I'm going to put a link to the URL in our show notes, and I will probably also trim the beginning of it and, and host the MP3 myself just so that people can, can listen to it in English from the beginning. And in case the site where it's coming from, becomes overloaded. I don't know what kind of servers or bandwidth those guys have, but uh, I have a feeling this is going to be a a highly listened to MP3. And unfortunately, there's no doubt that it's already come to the attack or to the attention of the bad guys, the black hats. Um, so what they explain is that that somebody asked them to do some penetration testing of a large network, and so they needed to write a 
a large sort of distributed scanner so that they could scan a whole a large network at once. Well, scanning means that you create TCP connections if you're doing a TCP scan like like for example Shields Up does at GRC. Of course I'm no I'm no newbie to scanning. Um I know all about how to, you know, do massive parallel scans. That's what what GRC does. Um so these guys did they they did what they call a user land stack which which essentially means that uh user land is the is the term for example as opposed to the kernel where user land means that you're running an application so they wrote a tcp stack as an application because they wanted to write a special one rather than relying on the kernel and just opening a connection through the kernel the reason they had to do this is that that they wanted to to have to be sending out essentially so much probing traffic that they would crash their own kernel if they were to do that. So instead, they said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna write our own our own TCP stack." Well, now this is really not difficult to do. There's tons of source code on the net. I mean, basically, you know, any Linux source is a TCP stack. And for example, if you want to check to see whether a remote machine will accept a TCP connection, you you just send a SYN packet, and that's trivial to do. So you and for example, Nmap is is an example of a of a very popular, widely known application level scanner, which is which, which does this. It it is a it implements a user land stack. Oh, essentially. I didn't know that. I mean, I've used Nmap many times. Sure. And so so basically all you need is raw sockets. The one, here we here we have again raw sockets. Mm-hmm. Um this is not something which um which Windows would allow you to do, but but a, a any Linux or Unix machine or any Windows server would allow you to just generate raw packets yourself. So you send a syn packet out and the far machine sends you back a syn ack which is acknowledging the receipt of your sin and sending you its sin, which you then acknowledge. And that's the famous three-way handshake. So so these guys said, okay, we want to be testing a whole bunch of machines at once. So we don't want to need to maintain state. That is, we want to... We want to have so many outstanding scans in progress that when we get the sin ack back, we're able to from that verify that this is a sin ack from a from a sin that we originally sent out. What they called this is client side sin cookies or client sin cookies. Um, and we've talked about what sin cookies were once before. Um, sin cookies were an innovation. You know, I think in like 1999, I believe it was Dan Bernstein. Now, this is the same Dan Bernstein who we've talked about recently who realized that there was a problem with DNS spoofing. You know, Dan is a smart security guy, and there was a problem. The Dan, tradition- Dan Bernstein or Kaminsky? No, Dan Bernstein. Bernstein. Uh, K- uh, yeah, Kaminsky, Kaminsky, of course, is the hacker who, who realized what the problem was in DNS. Right. Dan Bernstein is the security researcher who who said... 
source port randomization for DNS oh, servers. He, he predicted the problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he has his own DNS server th- that he put together right. w- with the highest level of security focus, um, which was never vulnerable to the DNS spoofing problem because he said 16 bits of entropy, which is contained in the DNS transaction ID, is not sufficient. So use that and a random source port and you get, you know, 32 which is, you know, makes spoofing enough more difficult that it's probably no longer practical. Mm-hmm. So, so this, so anyway, Dan, Dan said, okay, back before this, there was a problem with what's called resource consumption. The original denial of a service attacks exhausted the resources on the machines. They were not bandwidth flooding attacks, which is what we have today. They were resource consumption attacks. Here's what was happened. The uh, an attacker would send a SYN packet to a server. The server would say, "Oh, somebody wants to connect with me." So the server would allocate some buffers to receive the data and some other management space. Basically commit some RAM to dealing with the connection that was in the process of being established. Then it would send back it would generate a random number to encode um, its or to, to contain its sequence number, which it would store in this state tables, and then it would send back the SYNAC. Well, now, normally what would happen is that the person initiating the connection would respond with an ACK. But in the case of, of this being a d- denial, uh, an early form denial of service attack, Instead, the attacker would just keep sending sins. They would, the, the synacts would come back, or maybe not even back, because they could spoof the source IP. So this person would be sending synacts out to random places on the net. The, the, but the point is, every single time a sin packet came into the server, it believed a, a valid connection was going to be established, so it would allocate a chunk of RAM and another chunk, and another chunk, and another chunk, and so on. And it turns out that the early TCP implementations had no protection from this, and you could simply cause them to consume either all of the machine's RAM or all of the RAM that they were that the stack had been allocated, and suddenly it couldn't accept any more connections. It was busy waiting for the ones that were so-called half open to, to complete their opening process, which never occurred. And as soon as you did that to a, a commercial server that was online, it was under not denial of service. It simply couldn't accept any more connections. Sometimes it would lock up the whole system. Sometimes the stack would freeze or, you know, go sideways. I mean, all kinds of bad things happened when, when this occurred. So, so the notion of a stateless connection acceptance evolved, and it was Bernstein who actually invented this first. By bizarre coincidence, I came up with the same idea later. Um, I don't remember when it was. I think it was I was working on a client for Shields Up, and I was concerned that by accepting these connections, I could be subjecting myself to den- denial of service attack. And so I, I independently came up with the idea of a, of, a, of a stateless 
connection acceptance, which I, which I called Genesis. I came, it was an acronym for something that the, the, the folks in the news groups came up with, which, I, which was neat. Um, anyway, so the way that works is the, the idea is you want a server to be able to accept a SYN packet and send back a SYN ACK packet. Which it so that it will then wait for the following for, for the following ACK to accept to, to complete the three way handshake, but you don't want to require it to have to remember anything about this pending connection until the final that third ACK packet comes back to it. So what Bernstein cleverly realized is that there's enough information in the SYN packet with the source IP, the source port, the destination IP, the destination port, and the initial sequence number. There, there's enough bits of entropy that, that the server could send an ACK packet back, which cryptographically encoded that information that w- in the incoming SYN, such that when the... When its SYNAC packet came back to the person wanting to establish the connection, if it was a valid person, when they acknowledged the receipt of the server's SYNAC, the server could independently verify the information contained in that final ACK of the three-way handshake and get total confirmation of the fact that a three-way handshake had occurred because only it could have generated the SYN that matched the remote port and IP of the person wanting to connect to it. So essentially, this immediately solved the problem of this resource consumption denial of a service attack. So that's what SYN cookies are. This, the, the SYN cookie is the, is the name for the idea of encoding in the SYN packet from the server a a cookie, which is actually a cryptographic combination that represents the, the data that was sent in the original SYN from the client that wanted to connect to, to the server. So, so denial of a service attacks, as we know, have not gone away. They've changed. So is everybody using SYN cookies? Yes. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, Linux, has, uh, li- 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 Linux has it. Um, Windows has a version where if it sees this happening, it can kind of switch on SYN cookies. There were some, there, there are some, some mild compatibility problems with SYN cookies because there are features in TCP which are conveyed in the initial SYN packet. Things like uh, option bytes and, and window sizes and, and some things that you'd like to have the server remember. But if it's going to be in a sin cookie mode where it it cannot refuse it cannot afford to remember anything from the incoming sins, then um, there there were some variations later that tried to encode some of the more critical aspects of that in the sin cookie so that that could that could survive. But but in general, it, there's a, there's some mild compatibility problems, so you'd re- you'd rather not have them on all the time. And in fact, Windows adaptively turns them on when it notices that the server might be under a SYN flood condition if it sees that its stack's resources are are in trouble, like lots of half-open connections, as they're called. It'll hit a threshold, and then it'll switch into a, a SYN cookie mode 
where it'll just it'll give up those features which it would like to have, but which it can't have because it it just can't hold on to state of you know after receiving a sin. Okay, so what these guys did is they sort of did the same thing. Now that everyone understands what a server side sin cookie is, these guys did something similar on the client side. They would emit sin packets in into this vast network that they were scanning and when sin and, and they would remember nothing on, you know in their own app because when the sin act came back that would that that would tell them that it was an, a sin act from a sin that they had sent and that they would then send the final act in order to complete the connection now what they describe is and as i'm as i'm listening to this audio file from them I mean, I've explained this in far more detail than they did, but this everything I've explained is completely understood, you know, by everyone who really understands TCP and has been around for a while. So none of this is news. What they what they then and so as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, stop talking, stop, stop the music, stop the MP3, don't say anything more. But they kept on going. And they explained that in their testing, they inadvertently started crashing machines. That when they were doing this, machines started, and, and like routers. This is interesting. So just an accident that they, they it was, This was an accident. Wow. And, and they, these, you know, some machines would become non-responsive. And they talked about dropping packets. And that like in, in cases where packets were dropping, they would, and I'm, and I mean, I, I instantly knew what it was that was going on. And it's like, okay, stop talking. Stop talking. Don't say anything more. <laughs> you, you, is this because uh, this was a, a theoretical possibility that you had, were aware of, or it just a light went on for you? Or um, No, it's because I really understand how these protocols work. Right. And you know, I've written some TCP stacks several times myself. Okay. You know, Shields Up is, is, a, is a full... You know TCP implementation that, and I've written several, several times, mm-hmm. and I've written you know DNS servers. I've just finished writing one for this DNS spoofing test that we'll be talking about soon, and and so then they talked about timers, and it's like, oh no 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 don't <laughs> stop don't you stop don't talk about timers please, <laughs> and 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 they just gave it away to yeah. anybody who who understands TCP. I mean I'm you know. There's unfortunately the world is now full. Well, not unfortunately. I mean, it's a good thing. The world is full of people who understand TCP. But the problem is not everyone's motivation for having an understanding of TCP is the same. Right. I have never had any interest in bringing down foreign machines. I could do so easily, but that's not been my goal. There are people who now that this is has come out will listen to this audio. They will know exactly as I did instantly how to do this. So this was pro- an attack that you had thought of before. It was a different attack, something that you hadn't thought of. Um, well, I just, my mind doesn't think about attacks. But, if, but, but, if, but in other words, if you had been thinking in along those terms, this would, would it, how obvious would this have been? This is so obvious. It's pretty obvious. Um, okay. Yes. So, so, for example, I'll, I'll give our listeners an example of one. And, and okay, so they talk about resource consumption at the server. They, 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 they wondered what was going on. They pursued it, and they 
have figured it out. So they have something called Unicorn, which was their original scanner. And then they have something that they developed called Sock Stress. Sock, of course, is as in sockets, which is the, the universal term for, um, for, for uh, TCP sockets, which is sort of the, a socket is an abstraction of the, uh, the IP address and the port number and the state of a, uh, of a um, IP endpoint on, on the Internet. So um, they, they were talking about timers and about, you know, like reading the Linux source code and seeing comments in the source code where the, where the original author of this, of the Linux stack, I don't know if that was Linus or who it was, but said, okay, now, you know, this is something we want to make sure we don't get too many of. And so they're thinking, oh, well, it's easy to give the stack too many of those. And, and so what they're claiming is, and I have every reason to believe them, uh, as I said, in a couple weeks, they're going to be demonstrating this. They're claiming that they can bring down any server that they have aimed this tool at so far, Windows, Linux, BSD, and apparently routers. So anything that's with That's interesting. Routers, too. That's well, not good. Routers have, have open TCP ports. For example, routers will, tip, will typically accept BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, connections, from from anywhere because that's the way they exchange their routing tables. Right. And so they they say in this in this audio that in some cases it'll only kill one service, in some cases it will kill the entire machine. And they they and they said in one case and this has been repeated in text that I saw in several postings that the machine would no longer boot after they did this to it. What? So, okay, so here's an example. <laughs> Remember a while ago there was this notion of tar pitting when we had like code red and nimda were scanning for for vulnerable windows services there was this the, it, the there was this notion of tar pitting the idea would be that you would be just a random end user who would want to hurt this people who were scanning you so you would you would you would deliberately open ports and you would run this tar pitting software that what the tar pitting software does is when a, an incoming sin packet comes in it accepts the connection just like any tcp stack would sending back a sin ack then the the attacker says oh i got somebody here and it will ack back to finish the three way handshake now what you've established at that point is an asynchronous connection between the two endpoints. That is, either end can send data to the other. In TCP, there's something called the window. And the window is, 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 is essentially advertised, is, is the jargon used. It's advertised in every acknowledgement packet that goes back to the other end what you're doing is there's a field called a window which says this is how much buffer space I have at my end. And so as acknowledgments come in, each of those acknowledgments is telling the receiver of the acknowledgment how much buffer 
is currently available at the other end, and that allows the the that end to send data saying, okay, the other guy has told me he's got 16K. So I know that I can send as much as 16K without any additional acknowledgement. And so as data goes out, for example, and acknowledgements are coming back, that window size may decrease because there may be less buffer. So what this is, it's very clever. It's part of the original TCP protocol, and it allows each end to send ahead, that is to send data in advance of having it acknowledged. Because each acknowledgement says, well, I'll guarantee you that at least this much buffer is available at, at the time that, I have, that I've sent this acknowledgement. Well, if you send an acknowledgement packet that says, I have zero buffer, what happens is that is essentially saying, Something's happened at my end. Um, somebody, you know, my, the, the client is not taking the data out of the stack. So I'm waiting for him to do that. In the meantime, you can't send anything more because I've got no buffer. So it stalls the sender from sending anything. Well, what the sender does is starts a timer and every so often does what's called a window probe. It sends a, an act, an acknowledgement to the other end to in order to get it to acknowledge. Basically, it, it acknowledges one less than the number of bytes that have been received, which stimulates the, the, the side that is claiming it has no space available, stimulates them just to, to acknowledge, essentially correcting the, the sender's knowledge of of where they are in the in the communication, saying, wait a minute, you're one byte behind, you really mean this. In the process, the acknowledgement contains the current window size. So essentially, it's a way of for one end to probe the other, asking, do you have any buffer space yet? I've got all this stuff I want to send you. Do you have any buffer space yet? The other one, the other end keeps saying no. So in the tar pit system, what this would do is, as soon as the connection was established from the from the remote server that's trying to attack you, the sender would send back an acknowledgement saying, I've got no window space. Well, that would hang the connection. So the idea would be if a whole bunch of people out on the Internet, in, in, the, in the tar pit case, if a whole bunch of people ran these tar pits, then, then the, the, the scanners, the NIMDA and Code Red scanners, would end up collapsing because they'd be spewing out SIN packets trying to find vulnerable systems. These pseudo-vulnerable systems would send back acknowledgments saying that, yes, I have a service, let's, let's establish a connection, but oh, by the way, I've got no buffer space, so hold on. So what would happen is these NIMDA and Code Red scanners would end up collapsing because they would have too many connections in this in this state where they were they were valid connections, but they were never able to send any more data, and it just locks them up. So the, the important point here is that the in order to in order to get permission to send data, they have to set a timer which periodically probes the other end to see whether any buffer space is available. So so 
with that, with the understanding that's the way TCP works, and TCP has a whole bunch of other timers. For example, one is dropped packets, and we've talked about this before. If a, if a packet is lost, then there's no knowledge because the Internet has permission to lose packets at any time. If a packet is lost, the and the, and the sender of the packet doesn't receive confirmation, there's, it, it'll time out and resend. And then it, it times out like twice as long and resends again, and then twice as long and resends again. Um, so those timers are consuming resources. So it's very possible to establish a connection with a server, and in doing so, you have you've established a real connection. That is, you're you're a bad guy, but you don't have to worry about hiding because, for example, you're in some bot army. You're in a you're, you're a zombie computer that's been taken over. So you establish a, a connection with a computer, and you then you then do things that cause the remote end to consume resources like uh, timers. Uh, and and if you are using a so-called user land stack, which really means just if you are generating packets yourself, your computer is not actually as is not actually your computer's kernel, your computer's TCP IP stack, which would otherwise be similarly vulnerable, because I mean both ends would be consuming resources. You're not consuming any resources at your end because you're you're using this notion of client sin cookies so that you're not having to maintain all this state you 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 encode in the in the communication the information that you need in order to for example continue sending back an act saying oh sorry we still don't have any buffers meanwhile you're sending out more sin packets you're accepting the sin acts and sending back the acts saying oh sorry that's a good connection but we've got no more buffers so this is again this is a return to the original style low bandwidth denial of service attack and assuming i mean how so, many how many different uh, how many different connections would you have to open to bring down a typical server obviously one's not going to do it right no the, the one won't do it in one uh, blog posting by Robert Lee he said that their attack was rate limited to 9 packets per second distributed between 16 different source oh, IPs. nothing. So effectively less than one, 1 per second per source IP. As you said, Leo, that's nothing. Here's the point, is this is like a dribble attack. You could just be sending out, so you, send out you send out SYN packets, you accept the connections, and you say, sorry, we have no buffer space, and you just keep doing it. This passes through bandwidth, limitations it passes through denial the normal flooding style denial of service the sin spoofing denial of service attacks because you're creating valid connections at the other end and then tying up resources while at, at, at the server's end consuming none at your end i want to take a break i want to talk a little bit about the implications of this um and uh, if there's anything we can do about it um i mean even i understand this one and which, <laughs> yeah. well, that tells you that, you know, bad guys are no, going mean, to get right to work. Exactly. It's, it's happening right now. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want to mention before we get too scary. Actually, I want to mention a scary book from audible.com. Audible sponsors the show. They do those great uh, online downloadable books 
I'm a huge Audible fan. I have listened to Audible books since 2001. Oh, oh, I think I just did a count 300 some books that I've read by listening to. And I'm telling you, it goes in your brain when somebody's reading it to you, especially if it's a good reader and Audible uses the best in the business. It is like you're living it and it's so fun. Uh, do you remember the, uh, it was a great, I thought it was a very good movie. Um, the uh, Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. I enjoyed it until I found out that in fact, the ending is nothing like the novel or even the original uh, and Omega Man was based on this. You gotta read the original book by Richard Matheson. I am legend. It came. It's it's not a new book. I think it came out in the '60s, maybe even the '50s. It's been around for a long time. But you want to get a little scared. You remember the premise of the of the original movie, of course, uh, that a a epidemic has hit the world, and uh, and that uh, let's see, I'm gonna pull this up for you, and that everybody has. Um, has been either died or been transformed into what is essentially a vampire. And only Will Smith has survived. His family is gone. Everybody is gone. Only Will Smith has survived. But the ending is what's critical. And it even the novel's title doesn't make any sense unless you, unless you've read the whole thing and, and they botched the ending in the movie. So I want you to read the book. This is a classic. Some say, according to Fangoria, one of the 10 all time best novels of vampirism. Stephen King says, I think the author who influenced me most as a writer was Richard Matheson. Books like I Am Legend were an inspiration to me. You want to get scared. Yeah, it came out in 1954. You want to get scared. I Am Legend, Richard Matheson. This could be your free book. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you're not already an Audible member, when you sign up, you get a credit toward a free book. And it's yours to keep whether you decide to stick around or not. I know you're going to want to. 50,000 Books, speeches, shows, podcasts, comedy club performances, and on and on and on. In every category, business, classics, education, even erotica and sexuality, fiction, history, kids and young adults, mysteries and thrillers, and a very extensive sci-fi collection, which has grown and grown. And this one is a classic. I'm so glad they've added Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, our recommendation. Get it free by going to audiblepodcast.com. Slash security now. We thank Audible so much for their support of the Security Now program. Have you ever did you did you see the movie? You must have seen the movie. Yeah, I no. It, it was a good scary movie, but let me tell you something. The ending ruined it. If you know the real ending, and I don't want to tell you, but it explains the title, explains the whole thing, and yet it's a big aha moment. And they left it out. And you know, the Omega Man was just such a classic too. It well, was Charlton Heston, it, yeah. Yeah, it was it was good. And I mean, I watched it. I I own it. I, I you know, I just wasn't that impressed by it. No, I I, I really liked it right up to the end. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> what happened? Oh. What? And everything because it was one of those and everything ended happily ever after. No. Yes. And, you know, as I, as I remember, too, uh, when those bad guys broke into the house, some of those special effects were really pretty good. It so was they, scary. It, you got to yeah, admit it. Special effects. But uh, but they, they just changed the ending. In fact, if you get the DVD, they have the original ending on it, and it's very different. They changed it. They, I guess, you know, focus groups go, eh, it's too uh, scary. Uh, Speaking of scary, <laughs> let's get back to sock stress. This is scary. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm disappointed because I, I, okay, first of all, they, you know, I've just, again, I haven't tested any of this. I've just articulated an example of of how this might be done, which will be 
absolutely obvious to anyone who listens to this audio who has the capability, you know, that I do of of understanding TCP and generating their own packets. And and as we've seen with with the DNS spoofing and the nature of internet attacks now, um, this will be done. People, there there will be some. I mean, just as a challenge to demonstrate for proof of concept sake that oh look, you know, I can crash any system that I want to. These guys say that there are different vulnerabilities in different stacks. So not all stacks, that is not all, you know, Windows and Linux and BSD and routers are the same, but that they've never encountered one using this notion of a post-handshake protocol abuse, which is what I would call it. The idea is you, you do the TCP handshake in order to get real state now being saved on the server side. Then you do things that cause it to burn up resources. And, um, and, you know, for example, stalling the connection by sending back a zero window, you know, that's the first one that occurred to me because it's very, it, it is the tar pitting technology that we've seen before. And you can just stall the connection. And, you know, who knows which one of, if any, of the servers are vulnerable to that. But you could also do things essentially just not letting the connection progress and requiring the, the, the system to use timers. And they specifically mentioned timers as, as something that is a, a limited resource, and it's understandable that it would be. But this apparently destabilizes every machine that they've come across in different ways. Now, given that that's the case, I can't understand why they couldn't demo this to Microsoft and Cisco and, and you know, the, for example, essentially the, the equivalent of the people that Dan Kaminsky demonstrated his stuff to and, and make it clear to them why this is such a problem. They also talk in their audio file about how where, where there are firewalls and, for example, load balancing systems in front of many servers, which are now common, where there's like a, you know, a front-end appliance which is doing um, DOS protection and connection proxying or something, and then doing load balancing distributing, that if they bring that down and they have been able to... Sorry um, No problem. If, if they bring that down and they have been able to, um, then, of course, the whole server farm behind the appliance goes down. So, um, I mean, I, I, again, I, as I was listening to this, I was just closing my eyes thinking, no, 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 don't, don't keep talking. I mean, what, what they, you know, they're, they're still sort of being coy about it as if what they've just published in this audio doesn't completely describe to anyone who has an understanding of this how to perform the attack it does i mean this we we will see this in a day or two it's just um i i have to say and there is there no uh i mean here i am running a bunch of websites is there nothing i can do about it that's how i feel too leo no there is it doesn't um, and we should say that this is only impact somebody who runs a website Right. Good. Very good point. Now, the reason end users were so concerned about the DNS spoofing attack was that it what that meant was that they could be redirected to a bad site by if their ISP's DNS server had its cache poisoned. In this case, end users who are not running servers or any kind of services who have no exposed ports are safe. 
So, for example, if you use GRC's own Shields Up uh, service to to check for open ports, of course, that's what I wrote it for all those years ago, and you come back stealth or you have no exposed public ports, you're okay. But what this potentially means is that anybody who has who is accepting internet TCP connections, which is, I mean, even somebody who's like deliberately exposing some connections, an FTP server or a web server or something, not to mention any commercial sites that by definition are exposing these services or offering these services to the net. Um, give, once this stuff gets out there, it means that any, and given that these guys are not exaggerating and I, you know, I, I believe what they're saying. They've they're going to be demonstrating it, as I said in Helsinki in a couple of weeks. Um, they can crash the listening service or the stack or the machine, depending upon the nature of the resources that they're able to consume over on the server side, and they can do so with very little resources at their end. And that's the key. You no longer need a bot fleet. Um, a single, they they say in the podcast that a you know the example they gave uh, that I read in a posting was this rate limited to nine packets per second. But they also said in the audio that you know a single broadband user has enough ups, plenty of upstream bandwidth yeah. to bring down a a major server. I mean, like a, as strong a server as there is. And I mean, because this isn't based on flooding the server, uh, which requires a lot more bandwidth than the server has. This is based on uh, screwing with the TCP stack. Yeah, the way you can think of it is the very first the very first denial of a service attack was a resource consumption attack using SYN packets. SYN flood, right? And just 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 the SYN packets would end up burning up connection resources. So we developed Armor against that the so-called sin cookies and other kinds of stateless connection approaches so 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 that you were you were protected from a sin flood okay so but the problem was the the stack behind the rest of the stack behind that never got hardened Mm. so so what these guys are doing is they're saying, oh, let's go ahead and accept the sin connect we'll we'll accept the TCP connection, establish it. Now by the nature of TCP, the fact that you have to be able to retransmit lost packets, that means you have to have state. You, if someone says, I've got no window available, you have to probe them asking to see if they've now got window available. Um, you have to have timers by the, by the virtual definition of the TCP protocol in order for TCP to function in all kinds of different ways. So what they've done is they've come up with with protocol TCP protocol attacks on the protocol itself that so far they claim no machine is invulnerable to and this is bad i mean and so you know this is why i i said okay wait a minute where i think i i think i got to like question number 6 of of today's q and a assembling the questions you know, of the, the <laughs> you said, whoa, <laughs> I said, OK, we'll stop. hold on. So wait a minute. Now, this wouldn't be so hard to fix. I mean, all you have to do is fix the TCP stack to do something with these window requests, right? Yes. You, what what will be necessary? And, and it's unfortunate. Again, I just I don't understand why they went public with this, but they did. Mm. Um, 
what what you would need is you would need to harden the stack so that so that it has some strategy for dealing with this. Now, the problem is, first of all, um, if this was one attacker, if it was one attacker attacking, you know, Yahoo.com, well, we've got his IP address. So it's easy just to immediately blacklist him. And so, okay, and not only that, but we know who he is. So you'd be dumb to do this because you're going to have, you know, the authorities knocking on your door before long. But now we're in a different era. We're in the era of of bot fleets. And so this technology will then immediately move to the bot fleets where so it's as, not it's not the hacker's computer that's doing it it's uh the computers they've co-opted ages ago. Exactly. And yeah. so they've got 10,000 machines right. and no longer do 10,000 machines have to do bandwidth floods. Now 10,000 machines can just all send out, you know, they 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 do this stateless attack where they send out sins, they accept synax and then they do whatever they do after the connection has been established. So they can all afford to establish lots of connections into a single server, which believes that these are all valid clients. There's, there's, it's not clear that there's a, a technology that, that would differentiate from valid clients because the server is handling lots of valid clients, and here's just a bunch right. more that are not flooding them with bandwidth and these these the things that that these guys are apparently abusing are core requirements of TCP now what you could do would be to look at at hardening the stack that is you you don't want it to collapse you certainly don't want it to crash your machine um I think that case where Windows or whatever server it was that would just would no longer boot, that it just has to be an anomaly. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, how would that crash your machine and, and forget? Um, I mean, it'd have to destroy something. I mean, it's not. It would, yeah, it would have to make an, a, an alteration, a bad alteration to the hard drive. Well, on the other hand, I could see where, depending, I mean, if this is the case today that TCP stacks are able to bring the machine down, you could imagine that it might have been writing to the swap file and yeah. written to the wrong it or something. Of the hard yeah. drive yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anything could happen um, in that case. So um, let me so, ask, let me ask some questions. Yeah. Uh, IPv6, does this change anything? No. And in fact, they talk about that. They've the, the interviewer during this audio gets as worried as we get, although he doesn't understand this nearly as well now as you do and as our listeners do, and as I did when I was thinking to myself, okay, stop talking, stop talking, don't say anything more, because <laughs> you're going to, you know, they did, they just gave it away. Um, he he didn't understand because he got confused with what sin cookies was and so forth, and, you know, he's not a packet smith, but right. any of the world's packet smiths instantly know what this is. And what to do. And what to, to do. exploit it, yeah. yeah. Which is the only reason I've been willing to talk about it is that this is you know, it's, it's already out there. This is not, I've not given anything away. And I don't even know, for example, that using a zero window size would would cause a problem. But I won't be surprised if it turns out that's one of the things that you can do because it, it's just obvious. Again, that's the problem is this is obvious. And um, uh, anyway. So I'll, IPv6 doesn't uh, it, it no. uses the same stack, doesn't, doesn't change anything. Yeah. IPv6. Well, and here's the problem again: is that that IPv6 fundamentally is still using TCP, right. and TCP has to have has to have state and has to do things intelligently. For example, retransmitting packets when it hasn't heard back from after a certain amount of time. And in order to know 
how much time it has to have timers. Now, it might be, for example, there are many ways to do timers. Um, I've, I've implemented timers in many of my systems, which do not consume resources in the same way that like dumb timers might. So it might be that there are dumb things in the current stack implementations that could really be fixed and made much more bulletproof. But the time then to have done that was before going public with this rather than now, because none of that work has been done. And this is going to take some, some, a chunk of time. And if these guys are right, we're talking about, you know, anybody with a listening TCP port is vulnerable to having their system taken down until the stack is, is hardened and, and fixed. Randall Schwartz is in our chat room, and uh, he says that OpenBSD, they've already discussed this on the OpenBSD list, and in fact, it's not an issue with the OpenBSD stack. So it is, and we talked about this before, as being the hardened yep. version of BSD. Apparently, if you are running a BSD, a free BSD or NetBSD, you could copy the OpenBSD stack, uh, or I guess WinSock, whatever they call it, the SOC, and, uh, and be okay. Well, and we have to hope then that, I mean, that the OpenBSD guys who, who Randall is quoting know what they're talking about and understand everything about what these guys have done, because these guys have not yet said exactly what they've done they've not released sock stress to the world and so i guess the, so so the hope is that you know that the open bsd guys have have hardened their stack as i've been talking about in every way i mean that so that like the, the, so that open bsd can't be brought down bsd itself you know the berkeley standard distribution of 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 Unix was mentioned by these guys. I don't know which version or variant of BSD they were talking about, but they have said that they can bring down BSD. Mm. Yeah, well, not, yeah, exactly. And of course, uh, the other BSDs are vulnerable, but apparently uh, OpenBSD is not. They do something, they don't actually implement SIN cookies. They do a, something else, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, there are there there are many. See, and here again, we got to be very careful because what I immediately saw. I mean, slash dot, you know, that is not known for its rocket scientists. Um, they they immediately went off sideways and had no understanding what they were talking about. This is not about sin cookies at all. Right. It's got nothing to do with sin cookies, and that was one of the things that confused the interviewer in this audio file was that that. He got locked, latched onto sin cookies and and what, and what what were client side sin cookies and blah blah blah. This is you know that's not about what this is. So it's it's important for people to understand that this is about abusing the the deeper protocol behind the original handshake, and that's that seems very clear from the audio that that's what these guys have done. Mm. And so we just have to hope, for example, that the OpenBSD is as stack is as bulletproof as the OpenBSDs guys hope it is and it's a perfect example of of what i meant when i said hardening the stack because you know you you need to like look at it from an uh, from a worst case position instead of having comments in your code as apparently there is in linux and this was the example given where the author says oh we better hope that not too many of these happen you know (laughs) instead (laughs) your 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 code wants to say and it doesn't matter how many of these happen because you know, we got it handled, baby. We, we could have a problem if too many happen. Let's just hope not. Hope is not a good security strategy. So, um, 
presumably uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and all of these guys uh, are working on repaired stacks, right? Well, that's one of the other reasons I thought this podcast was important was if, you know, since the bag, the cat is out of the bag and the bad guys all know about it and Slashdot knows about it and DSLR, DSL Reports knows about it and Sans has a, a blurb about it. I mean, I'm I'm hoping it's come to the attention of the people who we need to have fix it. If not, I know it has now. And not hard to fix. Well, um, it doesn't you, you we we. We can't change the TCP protocol, um, but I would say probably not. Well, certain, I don't know what, what hard means. Um, you know, the problem is you don't want to destabilize your stack by making big changes to it, but you want to ask yourself, for example, in the case of all these timers or any other kinds of resources that can be consumed, you know, what happens if right. we've got too many connections in this state i think that would be the question what happens if we have too many connections in this state if 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 it's possible to artificially put the stack a stack's connection into a certain state what happens if we then have a bunch of these and i think that's where the vulnerability is okay and the patch would not be for end users anyway it would be for servers it would be for uh well, it'll be for everybody. Everybody's stack is able to receive connections. Normally, people don't expose them. You know, thank God Microsoft finally put a firewall right. into XP and to Vista so that, you know, there aren't open ports right. exposed to the Internet. Right. But, but what we will, you know, every OS and routers, I mean, routers is the other problem, too, because, I mean, if, if, if BGP port um, is open, as it typically is for routers, and many other routers have other ports open as well, um, if the, if routers are vulnerable, if the Cisco stack in iOS or Juniper's stack is vulnerable, then this is a huge problem because routers are easy to find. A trace route gives you the IPs of all the routers between here and there, and if it's then easy to to you know attempt to create BGP connections, which um, you know any routers that accept that, if they've got vulnerabilities, that allows a router to be brought down. And that creates, you know, large connectivity problems for the Internet. Wow. So, yeah. Um, anyway, all of us, every, every OS that does not yet have a hardened stack needs their stack hardened. So we will get fixes for all versions of Windows, servers and end user versions, um, as soon as Microsoft has them. <laughs> and we can hope that's we can, as soon as they fix it. Exactly. Hurry up, guys. Very interesting stuff. If you want to read this uh, in a transcript, I think it might be helpful to understanding it. I'm certainly going to do that. And Steve's got those transcripts online at his website, grc.com. That's short for Gibson Research Corporation. That's also where you find Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. All his great uh, free security tools, too, like Shields Up, some fun stuff like Wismo, grc.com. So do you want to do... um, Let's just switch and do the Q and A next week. That's what I was going to we'll, say. We'll just okay. sort of slide ourselves back. I don't see any reason why I have, why we have to keep them on even and odd the way they have been. Well, because I'm easily confused. But other than that, <laughs> well, we'll no. See, Leo, the problem is even and odd for Q and A, and you've got a three advertiser rotation schedule, so that's constantly out of phase. Then it's going to be real. <laughs> if people want to ask questions, and I bet you'll be few about this, uh, where do they go? Uh, Securitynow.com. I mean, grc.com slash feedback feedback i couldn't remember either grc dot the grc.com slash feedback. feedback 
Uh, we also have uh, news groups at GRC that are active, and I know we'll be discussing it there. I'm sure this will be something we're talking about in each Security Now podcast for the next several weeks. Until it's fixed, uh, yeah. As this issue moves forward, because this yeah. is big news. This yeah. is not good. Thank you so much, Steve Gibson. And I really appreciate your willingness to kind of say, wait a minute, this is something we got to cover. Do the research and come back and be ready to uh, talk about it. So thank you so much. Well, I didn't want to change the show's name to Security Then. I thought... <laughs> now, security, right uh, now. GRC.com, also 16 kilobit versions there. And uh, we've started a new service at Twit, which, of course, will be could be brought down by bad guys at any time. Uh, I presume, since it is a server, although it's not a web server, it's a IceCast server, which gives you a chance to listen to the audio wherever you are, even on an iPhone. Many phones support this. Um, it's in beta test right now. I've applied for the name twit.am. But uh, we do uh, audio uh, IceCast streaming of uh, the shows as we record them live. And then overnight, we do uh, repeats. So um, if you can't watch the video at live.twit.tv, you'll soon be able to listen to the audio at twit.am. There's details on my blog if you want to start doing it now during the beta test phase. And I've been listening on my iPhone, and it works great. It really is. Even on Edge, you can go around town, drive around, and listen. It's, It's pretty cool. Pretty fun. Steve, thanks so much. We'll talk again uh, next week, maybe with some good news. Talk to you then, Leo. Bye. Security now.